It's wonderful to see you. Uh, I'm really sorry that uh, I'm not physically in the zenda with you. Rather, I'm about 150 feet away up in my attic office. Uh, I think as most of you know, uh, I came down with COVID on immediately on my return from uh, the International Network of Engaged Buddhist Conference in Korea. And uh, I have been just reckoning with that for the last 11 days or so. Uh, and uh, that's not been fun. I feel like energetically I've, I've turned a, a corner uh, my fatigue is a little better. My <clears throat> direct uh, respiratory symptoms are uh, abating and my state of mind is a little clearer. Uh, but, you know, I was really as careful as I could be for about three years and uh, decided I really wanted to take the risk to uh, participate in INEB and uh, I'm glad I took the risk. If I knew I was going to get COVID, I probably would not have got taken the risk, but you pays your money and you takes your choice. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the way it is. Um, I wanted to say uh, just in a nuts and bolts fashion, uh, you know, I've had to cancel a lot of in-person things. Uh, I was supposed to uh, play Cajun music uh, on College Avenue this afternoon at a, at a public performance, but we decided to cancel that. Um, and uh, I decided since I tested positive, still positive yesterday for some, you know, with the rapid antigen test, um, rather than take any kind of chances with my health, your health, and my friend Yasir's health, I've decided to uh, postpone our uh, class on uh, Sufi and Zen perspectives on a good life. Uh, going to put it back another week. So we'll we'll actually have just two sessions on the 21st and the 28th. Uh, and that'll be on the website. We need to change it on the website, actually. Uh, so these are disappointments, but um, such disappointments are also part of our practice, uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, practice of having to let go of one's expectations, of one's wishes. And I think that, um, you know, a number of us are uh, growing older, perhaps. Uh, and we're finding that this is an immutable law. It's not an option anymore. So uh, like it or not, we need to come to come to terms with our lives as they are and enjoy our lives as they are and really support each other and help each other so it's a crisp autumn day i'm really happy to have uh i think much of my family is is downstairs <coughs> uh 
Gempo was here and um, my sister-in-law, uh, Debbie, is here. Sylvie and her partner, Cooper, are downstairs. Uh, Lori's there sipping from her blue cup. Uh, and so that's, I feel very held in that in that space and by you also all of you that i see on the screen uh bzc friends old friends from different different realms different aspects of my life uh so thank you it's been a long time since actually i've given a lecture uh not since before aspect to practice and uh, I had hoped again that I would do this in person. It's nice to look around. I see some of you <clears throat> who received uh, lay ordination wearing your rakasus. Uh, it's the first time I've seen you actually wearing your rakasus in this in this setting, and it, it brings me uh, a lot of joy to see that. Uh, so, um, as I said, my recovery is going as well as can be expected. What I want to talk about today is just give you a little uh, report and sense of, of what I was doing uh, in Korea. Uh, so, this was the 1922, our first, the first conference of the International Network of Engaged Buddhists uh, in three years. Uh, and I've been going to these INEB conferences since 1992. And I think that was the, I, I was at the third conference and I've been going been to almost all of them. I've missed a couple. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very important to me and very close to my heart. And uh, I think that indirectly, it has been a, it's had an effect and an influence on our community and on the, the shape of uh, Buddhism in the West. Uh, and many of the friends that I've made there are among my closest Buddhist friends. And we've maintained contact over these 30 years. And uh, most of them were there. Uh, so the conference was in Korea. Uh, and I just, I have I I have some slides. Uh, I want to show you just sort of what this is what Korea looked like. Let's see. Oh, what's happening here? Can you see that? It was just you know gorgeous season. Uh, with the turning, the turning of the trees, in in a way that we don't uh, we don't see it here, and uh, you know Korea itself is a it's an it's a very complex place. Uh, there's a lot of nature. It's beautiful. Uh, reminded me, it looked like Tennessee. Uh, you know, just these, a lot of rolling hills just blanketed with, uh, with golden and red leaves turning in the season. Just beautiful. The other side of it is a third of the population lives in one city, Seoul, which is a megalopolis. And um, an old friend of mine, who had been in the Peace Corps in Korea 
when he returned to Korea, he returned to Korea a couple of years ago for a visit, and he was astonished because almost nothing that he had remembered was still there. It's like, uh, particularly in the city, it's like they've taken a place and uh, completely modernized in 30, 40 years. And it's unimaginably dense in population uh, and uh, really alive. It's a very alive place. And um, I would say, unlike what I experienced in other, I've experienced in other parts of Asia, uh, I feel like, you know, you see the presence of, of women uh, very strong, uh, very strong, very expressive. And so there's, there's a feeling, there's a feeling of uh, something right in the society. On the other hand, there's a feeling of consumerism uh, and mass culture almost running amok. And it did run amok, you know, while we were there the last night, uh, last night that I was there um, happened to be Halloween. And I think probably you heard about this horrible event in, in one of the busiest uh, nightlife areas of, of Seoul, 150 people, 150 young people died. They were basically trampled to death uh, in, uh, in a very crowded sort of bar and restaurant district. In an, they caught in an alleyway and it's, um, it's easy to see because there are all these, between the major streets, there are these tiny alleyways and they are crammed with bars and restaurants and uh, different kinds of shops. And if you get caught in there by a crowd, um, it can be dangerous. And it's like 150 people, just terrible, terrible. The whole city was in shock that the last day that I saw. Anyway, the conference that we attended was sponsored by uh, the Jungto Society, the uh, uh, basically the Together Society, uh, and it's a very large um, lay Buddhist organization. It's run by a charismatic monk, uh, uh, Ponyum Sunim, who was our host, and. Uh, I think what's unique about uh, Jungto is it's a very large network of, of volunteers, uh, just ordinary people who contribute. I think their, their vow is essentially an hour of meditation and an hour of service a day. And that really adds up when you have uh, you know, a lot, tens of thousands of volunteers. And they're doing, uh, they're really doing social work. Um, they're providing resources to people in circumstances of natural disasters. Um, uh, Ponyam Sanim won the Niwano Peace Prize, which is, uh, very prestigious prize uh, for his efforts to uh, promote peace and to directly feed people in North Korea during a time of terrible famine a few years ago. And there aren't many monks who are doing this kind of work. And he's devoted, he's devoted to it. Um, so he was a very gracious and generous host, uh, and uh, 
seems to have built a remarkable organization. The people that we, you know, who were helping us were wonderful. I mean, they just were really open, really friendly, and curious about uh, those of us who had come for, for this conference. So we met, um, we came together. There were people from 21 countries, uh, a significant number of ordained people, of monks and nuns, um, but many lay people from all over Asia and uh, some of the West. And that's kind of what the network is, has been like the whole time that I participated. Uh, as I said, I've been going to INEP for 30 years. Uh, and so I've become kind of a quasi elder, uh, you know, but I want to, I just want to appreciate uh, and pay my respects to the founder of INEB, who is uh, Sulak Sivaraksa. Let me pull up a photograph of him. Give me a second. Yeah, so that's Ajahn, Ajahn which means teacher, Sulak. And uh, this was uh, a picture I took at the, at the conference. And some of you have met him. Uh, He's been here a number of times, uh, and he's given he's given talks here, uh, and he's now ninety years old. And so we celebrated his birthday uh, while we were there. And uh, Sulak has been a pivotal figure in my Buddhist life. Really, I see him as one of my uh, main teachers. Uh, as I said, he's been here, uh, and there was also, there was always a, a warm connection between him and Sojin when, when Sulak visited. We would have tea, we had some meals together, uh, he always, he was, he always asked after Sojin when, uh, when I would see him. Uh, Sulak grew up in Thailand or in Siam, as he calls it. He doesn't, he really objects to the name Thailand because it's, it refers to, it's a, it's a colonial name as far as he's concerned. Um, and he's been a writer, uh, an activist, a publisher, and a really, <coughs> excuse me, a pivotal uh, engaged Buddhist. And I think at the heart of his teaching, something he wrote about some years ago, um, it's what he calls Buddhism with a small b, which means carrying the values of Buddhism, not necessarily uh, the religious uh, superstructure. Uh, and at the same time, he's really helped pull together the Buddhist world from all over Asia, all over the West, uh, into this network. Um, and the network has become more and more effective. I've met him in 1992, and at that time, he was in exile for the second or third time from Thailand. Um, there had been a military coup, and he criticized the king of Thailand for not intervening and um, for allowing the coup to go forward. In Thailand, you don't insult the king. It, they, have a, they have a law called laissez-majeste, which obviously is, goes back to 
the respect you're supposed to pay for the king in France. But it's very serious. You go to prison. And uh, they arrested Sulak and put him in jail, let him out on bail. And he, at that point, he fled the country. And uh, after a couple of months, he ended up uh, in America. And he ended up at our house uh, because of the connection to Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And so, uh, and he spent, he had many visits with, with me and Lori. Uh, and we worked on his memoir uh, a lot and really got to know him very well. And I stayed, I would stay in his house when I went to Bangkok. Uh, but the, the ironic uh, reality when, when I made my first trip to my first INEP conference in 1992, uh, I was leaving for the airport and Sulak was waving me goodbye from our door. Uh, and it's just been a very deep and sometimes uh, thorny relationship. Uh, he can be, uh, he's a very strong character. He can be somewhat authoritarian and uh, he can be wrong. Uh, and also, you know what, he's capable, he's capable of apologizing. And also, those kinds of disagreements, this is really a lesson for me, you know, the disagreements don't interfere with the core of our relationship or friendship. And Sulak really values those relationships. It's I've watched him so many times. He would like come in, uh, he'd settle down uh, in our kitchen with uh, the phone and his phone book, and he would systematically call everybody, you know, in the in California that he knew just to say just to say hello to make contact, and that is just the way he wants to live to live his life. And it's, it's paid off very well. So uh, I would, you know, it's through him that the whole circle that I have of, of, of close friends, it's, it's all through knowing Sulak, just as uh, the circle of Zen friends that I have in this country are all through knowing Sojin. You know, these people are, it's hard to imagine my life without them. And I know that many of you have uh, Sojin or others in your life that, that play that role. So uh, I continue to be very involved with INEB and uh, I'm really grateful for that. So over the years, the, the conference, when we move the conference around from country to country, uh, in Thailand, India, Sri Lanka, Burma, Malaysia, Taiwan, and Korea. So just to say a little about, I want to say a little about the conference and also um, I can show you some pictures. But, uh, the, the shape of it was it began with a meditation retreat for two days which was a great way to make a transition. And it was sort of deep in the countryside, uh, not in the city. Uh, and following that was exposure trips to uh, sort of Buddhist and other cultural uh, locations. And I just let me show you a few of those photos if I can. Um, First of all, this is, this is what the, I wish I understood how this worked. Uh, this is a shot of what our conference looked like. Uh, it was a row of, this is a row of nuns in the front and uh, we were careful. We were mostly wearing our masks, but uh, we got COVID anyway. 
this is our host, Pamun Sunim. Uh, in one of his centers. And speaking of exposure, you cannot move a video while people are spotlighted. Okay, I know, but, uh, so it's like really remarkable architecture. This is one of the big monasteries. It's one of the main uh, Choge order monasteries. Uh, that's outside and then inside is, look at that, just astonishing. Uh, you see the, the Arhats are back here and these are all really these are remarkable spaces some of you may have seen this one already this is at unmansa which is uh the largest women's training monastery in korea uh the, these nuns were so joyous really really wonderful uh, Junto Society has a they have an organic farm and they they produce a lot of their own food for the local for local centers. Uh, this is one of their greenhouses. We had a day when we sampled different cultural, we had different cultural exposures. And one of the, these was dressing in traditional, for those who wanted dressing in traditional Korean clothing. It was, it was pretty amazing stuff. I did not do this. Uh, I went to the tea workshop instead. And I think one or two more. We had an exposure trip to the DMZ, and I want to—I'll talk about that again in a moment. But uh -huh. this is what the DMZ looks like. Are you seeing that? Whoops. Yes, we can see it. Tell us okay. what it is. Yeah. So we are in, a, in an observation post, uh, and this road is the line of demarcation between North Korea and South Korea. And you're looking across this valley at, uh, these are settlements and towns in, uh, in the border area in North Korea. And, you know, it's very, it's so strange because um, the land is the same, the people speak, the people look the same, people speak the same language and they have the same culture, but they have completely different social realities. And this is like one of the most highly militarized areas of the world. And it's you know, it's a very, uh, it's a very dangerous spot. This and so the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, is about forty miles from Seoul. So it's within range of not just missiles but heavy artillery. So any conflict that that escalated, uh, the North Koreans have the capacity to wipe out. Seoul within about a half an hour. Uh, and there'd be no way to stop it. And again, a couple of days after we left, they, uh, you know, they're constantly testing missiles and they actually, for the first time, fired one directly over South Korean territory <clears throat> to land in the ocean. So it's, 
it's still it's very volatile and um it's really peculiar because here we are more than 70 years after the so-called korean war and the korean war dates from the end of world war ii at the end of world war ii when the japanese were defeated korea had been a japanese colony and uh there was a race between the russians and the americans as to who is going to who is going to fill this void the most 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 quickly and the russians um came in very fast and took over most of the korean peninsula and then the americans landed and actually pushed them back so this is the beginning the beginning of the cold war was actually uh, a hot war and that war the north korea which had was supported by the russians and then by the koreans uh what they had was just a <clears throat> there's no armistice there's no peace there was a very delicate ceasefire between the north and south right here this was the place where uh this was the line of demarcation and uh technically these two now distinct countries are still at war with each other and uh you know as we know north korea has a generation of uh dictators uh, and here you have uh oops sorry here you have me telling uh, telling king jong un what for <laughs> this is actually it's actually a photo of uh kim jong-un and donald trump shaking hands uh, which uh was subject to being hacked so i think i'm gonna stop sharing the screen and go back so what i want to say about this about this conference and then i can leave time for for questions some of the things that really stood out to me the theme was uh, Buddhism in a divided world. And we know all about that. We live in a divided country. Uh, and the world in different ways is, is similarly divided. Uh, and the idea was to look at what do we have to offer? And we have a lot to offer we have to offer practices of mindfulness practices of principles of peace precepts um and the idea of a harmony which is really so similar to martin luther king's beloved community the beloved community is not a it's a community that is not devoid of conflict but it sees conflict as creative and it vows to resolve our conflicts uh in manners that are not violent and not retributive and these are these are the values that that buddhists and others if we look at Buddhism with a small b, can offer to the world. And that extends to a variety of different areas. We had um, a series of uh, uh, workshops in the course of the conference. Uh, one that I participated in was in uh, what they called gender equality and social inclusion. And I learned that that's a that's an acronym, uh, YESI, uh, that uh, is commonly known in these kinds of 
social change venues. Uh, and I was really happy to, to talk about our experiences here at Berkeley Zen Center. Uh, I feel like the move over all these years uh, increasingly towards uh, a state of gender equality in the practice, among the practice leaders, and so forth. Uh, and our efforts, uh, the unspoken efforts, and also the the current um, programmatic efforts for social inclusion that I think is the motivation for our many communities, one Sangha work. Uh, it's how do we see each other? And what I saw at INAB that was tremendously uh, inspiring, and uh, I see one of my one of my INAB friends, uh, Ted Mayer, is is here, and he's one of the people I think has been instrumental in basically bringing social inclusion into the INEB circle and developing young leaders from a variety of countries and from a great diversity. Uh, and it felt to me like at this meeting, some baton was passed among or between the generations from, from our generation or from Ajahn Sulak's generation where he's 90 and you know his mind was so strong that his he's physically frail and uh the rest of us are also getting older and but there was this new uh cohort of really strong people from from all over asia who were leading programs at INEB and actually putting these principles into place. And I find that tremendously inspiring. There were workshops on education. And there's a lot of Buddhist-based education that's been going on in our circles throughout a variety of countries. There's a growing, uh, really growing interest in Asia in uh, Buddhist chaplaincy, which uh, is something that's really evolved in this country. And some of you are involved in that, as I am. Uh, and now it's, it's seeding itself in, uh, in these other lands. I had um, yesterday a Sri Lankan monk in, in Sri Lanka wrote, wrote to me, asking for information about programs and uh, approaches to Buddhist chaplaincy. Uh, so there, that's something we can share. Looking at um, the role of children, uh, how children are, how children need to be protected in our societies. Uh, and that, again, uh, that cuts across all of these geographic lines. So all of this and, and a lot of these projects were being, uh, were being really fostered by younger people, which is something that I like to think we're working on. Even us older people are working on it. Uh, I think it was remarkable in the context of gender equality and social inclusion. Uh, one of the strongest presenters uh, at INEB was a, a trans woman a Thai, from Thailand. And there she was really laying down uh, some really difficult experiences and uh, understandings of how the Buddhist community has been 
how her Thai community has been, uh, both the repressive aspects and also the liberative aspects. aspects. And um, to me, these were watershed moments uh, in this network, which makes you want to continue and, and contribute as best I can. So maybe this wasn't such a great Dharma talk. I don't know. Uh, but um, I think it's important. It's important to know what's going on in our world and to know that we're actually really we're connected to it. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to connect with it. I can, I can help. Uh, but it's the Dharma that we have invariably comes from Asia, all of our traditions, our Zen traditions, our Tibetan traditions, our Vipassana and Theravada traditions. Uh, the seeds here were planted by teachers who came from Asia. And what's happening in Asia remains important and relevant to us. And at the same time, what's gratifying is that there are, through networks like INEB and other organizations, and I see this in Soto Zen, uh, in Soto Zen circles as well, there's a feedback loop through which we do have things that we can offer to uh, our sisters and brothers in Asia. And we're in dialogue with them. And I, I really encourage that dialogue. And uh, I'm really happy to help anyone who wants to know more, or participate. Uh, and I think that's where I'm going to stop for today. Uh, and I'm, I'm really happy to, to take your questions. Uh, I can see the people on screen if you raise your digital hands. And uh, if you're in the Zendo, I think Joe can help me uh, see any questions there. So thank you. We have a question in the Zendo, Hozam. Okay. Judy, go ahead. Uh, Hozam, thank you for your talk. Uh, I'm curious about, you know, in these kinds of um, gatherings and networks and stuff like that, uh, what I wonder about is, uh, do you notice, let's say in this, uh, one that you were at recently, that there are um, particular Dharma teachings or particular practices or rituals that connect folks um, because in, in this kind of context, because um, what I hear a lot in these conversations is that um, you know, each school uh, sort of shifting from we've got it right and everybody else is somehow missing it. Um, you know, whether that's intra-religious or inter-religious is uh, placing different emphasis on the same uh, Dharma, if you will. So you were talking about lowercase b and I'm wondering about, if you will, lowercase d. Do you, do you notice, um, you know, like in, in, in Soto Zen, we might say, everybody chants the Heart Sutra. So I'm just wondering um, if, if you might say a little bit about that. 
Well, certainly all the Mahayana people chant the Heart Sutra. That's that's across the board. And we, we actually did that. The Theravadas uh, folks don't. Uh, but one of the things that I think, I mean, actually to answer your question, um, the Dharmic material that's shared is pretty basic. You know, it's, it's, it's basic Buddhism. Uh, and one of the things, for example, that we, that we used, I use a lot and we used in a couple of workshops is, um, <clears throat> the Four Noble Truths as a modality of, of social investigation, which is very sensible, very sensible and simple. <coughs> it does it doesn't necessarily mean going into a detailed um, Buddhist analysis of the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I wish there were more time in these meetings for really exploring the, the Dhammic basis of uh, the kinds of principles we're investigating. <clears throat> but that work is going on in the uh, kind of individual programs. They're, they're always looking for various Dhammic sources. Um, but there's just not that much time at, at a meeting like this. Um, but what I will say is that unlike other gatherings that I've been to, I feel no lineage chauvinism. There's tremendous openness and uh, openness across Mahayana, Theravada, uh, really openness and warmth uh, um, among the monks and nuns, which, which is certainly not often the case in uh, in the Theravadan countries. Uh, in the Theravadan countries, the monks are, the nuns are uh, really in very difficult circumstances and they don't get very much support from the monks, but here they really do. So that's probably as far as I can take it. Um, I see a couple of hands online. Sudesh, good to see you. Thank you, Hosan Sensei. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, my question is, um, since this uh, relates to a point that you made during your talk, you mentioned that we live in a divided world and what the Dharma can offer us, uh, given that fact. Um, did you notice any of the tensions arise that are so alive in the world. So for example, uh, right now during the COP27 climate summit, there's uh, the demand for the Western world to pay for loss and damages um, for the global South, or uh, there are so many other issues like the West appropriating vaccines during the COVID pandemic and um, reducing access to them to uh, Asian countries and other countries in the global south. Uh, did you see any of those tensions rise? And if so, and if not, um, what do you think that the atmosphere, the Dharma uh, contributed? Well, I think that, uh, um, no, I didn't see those tensions arise because I don't feel that there would, I don't feel it was that much of a, <clears throat> a difference of understanding between people from the global south and the global north. Uh, you know, there's a strong feeling that 
some of us articulated of the really um, major responsibility that the global north has for problems that are manifest in, in the global south. We don't, you know, the people who are, people who are there, are, a lot of them are, are fairly sophisticated thinkers and, you know, really nobody from the north shows up who, who is not pretty grounded in those kinds of integral ways of thinking about the Dharma and social issues. Uh, that's why it's wonderful. It's like you can get to uh, some really deep discussions pretty quickly. So thank you. Uh, Ken or Katie? Good morning, Hazan. Hi. Um, uh, I just wanted to say you said this wasn't, that, that, that maybe this wasn't much of a Dharma talk, but I just wanted to say what I was struck by, which is um, how, how deep it is just to show up and to show up for decades. Um, and I have been involved in various kind of oppositional political moments. And um, I, it's, it's, it's really wonderful to hear about the nourishing side of things as well. And I don't know if you wanted to talk at all about the practice aspects of that, but I just wanted to say that that struck me. So thank you. Well, thank you. Um, this is my life. Uh, and this is something that I bring. And what I'm constantly interested in doing is figuring out where the, I believe there's an interface between uh, the work that we were doing there and the work that we, just the practice that we are doing in a very ordinary way here. And I am grateful that uh, I got nothing but encouragement for these, this involvement from, from Sojin, even though at a certain point, he was uh, not always happy with how absent I was. Uh, it's clear to me that my the time of life of a lot of traveling is over. Uh, I'll do some, but uh, my priority is is here. But at the same time, those connections are very rich, and they. Uh, in ways that that you don't fully understand, that I don't fully understand, uh, they uh, they enrich the soil of our practice that we're uh, that we're involved in here in Berkeley and and elsewhere in the country. Um, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that answers your question. Yes, that kind of echoes the, the feeling that I get. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else in the Zendo? Yeah, we had uh, Preston. Hi, Hazan. Hi, Preston. Um, how do you how do you relate to the always looming possibility of the nuclear destruction of our planet and like what might be a Buddhist perspective, I guess, on how we relate to this reality. I think, you know, for some reason, <laughs> Buddhist perspective is duck and cover. Um, uh, we are faced with so many um, potentially or inevitably overwhelming circumstances. Uh, the nuclear issue was uh, one that I raised and other people raised. And uh, 
it's hard to know how to influence the uh, we can influence our country to some extent uh, what influence we have other over other nuclear powers is uh, zilch uh, but I think from our side it's constantly it's a it's a matter of then it becomes a political question uh really are we uh supporting the saber rattling of our own um government and military that is um uh, adding to the potentially escalating tensions uh, in the Ukraine or elsewhere. Uh, and how do we keep speaking truth to power? And I think we have to do that in the face of, of the nuclear issue, in the face of uh, the, the climate. Uh, we have to do that even if we fail even if we fail the thing that we have to be to take responsibility for is to maintain our real our true human values even if the worst happens this is this is the best that we can do at the same time as we um to the extent that we have some political agency uh make sure at the very least that we don't have megalomaniacs running our government uh and you know many people are trying to work on that uh but we live in a divided country it's it's really tough i mean it's literally it looks like the the Senate is once again is going to be literally divided. And the House is very close to that. And it's just uh, it's painful for all of us. Uh, and uh, for people of my generation, it's like this is what's this is what it's come to. It's really hard to imagine it's like we not would not have imagined that 20 or 30 years ago but it's what's happening and we have to deal with it and so uh i don't know how we intervene in an effective way to prevent uh nuclear war uh but we have to do what we can politically publicly and even if that fails we have to figure out what our what our how we really want to respond to each other as humans i have time i think i see Hi, Alan. i'm sorry Thank Go ahead. You. it's it's time it's 11 25. Okay, I saw one more hand, if I could take that and try to be quick. Helen? Good morning. Um, my question relates to something you said early on, which was um, that the adherents of this group do one hour of meditation and one hour of service. And um, the word service is not something that I ne necessarily resonates with me. And I'm I'm kind of fascinated by it. Um, would you say a few words on, maybe my question is how to orient to what we do as service? Um, I think service is just a way of rationalizing what we do that is beneficial. You know, so they, they ask these people to work an hour in, in their collective gardens or, uh, uh, or cook 
cook a meal for homeless people or, you know, something, something simple of that sort, or even work, do work for the organization. Mm-hmm. Not, not so complicated. But it's, but it's also a vow, a strong intention uh, about how you're going to organize your day. So let's end there.